uh, in the book of Revelation, and it's called The Mystery of Revelation. So we come to the end of a series of messages that Jesus said to seven different churches. And the message that we're going to see today is a message where Jesus says to the church that he's about ready to spit them out of his mouth. So what in the world, the mystery that we're going to look at today is what, what would happen in the life of a church? What kind of church would be at the point where Jesus himself would want to spit the church out of his mouth? It tasted like a nasty ant or whatever it was that it tasted to him. How could we even get to that point? And how can we avoid that? So we'll take a look at that. So today, the title of today's message is, uh, What Makes Jesus Spit? So that's what we're talking about today. Uh, let's, let's, let's say a quick prayer for God to help us. So, uh, Lord, thank you for your, your presence in our lives and the, the meaning of Christmas as we begin the Advent season right now. And Holy Spirit, would you come? And just as we see repeated theme uh, week after week, as we read your message, would you give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us as a church? Join us together, our hearts together, uh, convict our hearts, move our hearts, help us see what you want us to see, to hear what you want us to hear, and respond with loving obedience. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 3, just flip to the very end. Chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 14, where Jesus addresses this last church, the church of Laodicea. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write this. So, what do we know about Laodicea? So, let's uh, take a look. You can pull up the image of that uh, town up there. But Laodicea, it was really, it was an intersection of some major trading routes and was perhaps one of the richest and most affluent cities of its day. It was absolutely opulent. It was incredible. It had a banking center that was the center for the entire region. It had a medical school where doctors were trained to heal particularly. They were particularly here. They had especially in healing people's eyes. So they, they created ointments, cream, powders that brought healing to people's eyes. And so people would travel long distances to come see. They also had local farmers who uh, had this local breed of black sheep who developed this high-quality wool. Uh, that people wore, and it was like it was like the Armani or the Gucci. I don't. Mean, I was wondering, does Gucci even make clothing? I don't know if they do, but it's a high level. So our, it's like high level desired clothing that everyone would want. Where do you get it? You get it from Laodicea. So you knew you were you were the in. You had the right clothes to wear if you were part of what they had to offer. So what happened was, however, back in 60 A.D., there was a giant earthquake. So this earthquake devastated. All of the city, or a lot of the cities in Asia Minor, including, um, including this city here, Laodicea, was, was devastated by the earthquake. And so the Roman Empire, they said, hey, we want to help you. So, you know, when there's a disaster, the government would help you with different funds and provide funds. And Laodicea said, you know what? We don't need your money. Actually, we're, we're good to go. We got our own money. We have more than enough, and we're going to come out of that. And in, uh, engraved, you can actually go there and see on some of these columns in different places, engraved on there uh, is the phrase, by our own might. And so by their own might, by their own opulence and strength, they were able to come back and uh, build, uh, build their city back up again. And this was kind of the theme of the city itself and had been for many years, and they weren't going to be stopped by any earthquake. But God's word uh, about the church in Laodicea said something 
uh, that really interacted with this attitude that was prevalent, as we'll see, in the church itself as it was in the city. So Revelation chapter 3, continuing on. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So Jesus reminds the church that who's the mighty one? He's the mighty one. It's not, not them. And so when we say amen at the end of a prayer, uh, what, what do we mean by that? When we say amen, we mean, well, let it be so. I don't know if you have any Star Trek fans out there, but John Luke Picard, make it so, right? So that's what we're saying when we say amen. Make it so, Lord. What The words that we just said, let it actually happen and come into existence and being. And so Jesus being the amen is the one who makes things happen. He's the one who makes it so. And in fact, he has made the entire universe. He is the king of creation and of the cosmos who has brought everything into existence. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you can't get much mightier than that. I am the one who has, who has the might here. And you have to remember that this is who I am. And so remember, when you read the book of Revelation, and as we go through Christmas, we'll, get into some of, we'll maybe get into some of the weird stuff uh, as we go on a little bit more through the Christmas season. But what is this book all about, this mysterious book? It's about who Jesus is. So we have to remember, that's the primary meaning of this book, is a revelation of who Jesus is and what he's saying to us and how that intersects with each of our lives. And so he talks uniquely to each church, and we'll see that. He takes the context that they're in and speaks right into that context to help them understand what he's trying to say. So let's take a look at the next verse, Revelation 3.15. I know your deeds, and this is probably, actually, probably one of the most famous passages in Revelation. But he says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So why would he say that? So despite all their resources, one thing we understand, despite all the resources that Laodicea had, they didn't really have any good water sources. There was a dried up river, and so they re relied on two water sources, one from the north and one to the southeast. And the one in the north uh, was, there was a source of water. So let's pull up that image there. It's in, in a town called Heropolis, which you can still visit today. And actually on my bucket list is to go to a hot springs. Has anyone ever been to a hot springs before? So maybe a couple of people. I just think it sounds awesome, but there's healing properties. You go to the hot springs, it's bu bubbling. So back in the day, these hot springs were a popular uh, tourist destination, a place of healing for, for body ailments, as they are uh, in our modern context. And what would happen was they would take the water and channel it through aqueduct, an aqueduct system, into the town. But by the time that, that water came into the town, it was, had lots of minerals, of course, lots of chemicals, because of, uh, because of the, volcanic, um, yeah, the, the volcanic nature of that region. And by the time it got to town... It was, it was lukewarm. So that was actually something that they were very familiar with. So they didn't have their own source of water, got to town. Now, on the other hand, uh, there is the town of Colossi, which was to the southeast. And this town, in the, in the background, this is a little farther away, about 11 miles or so to the southeast. In this town, there were, there were these uh, mountains in which there was some runoff from the snow that would come down. So the snow, it was clean, cold, pure, good for drinking. It's like the best kind of pure, like the Alpine, you know, the Fiji water kind of stuff. Like you can get the best kind of drinking water from there. It was, it was cold and delicious. But by the time it got to the town, traveling all the distance over the heat in Turkey, guess what it was? What it was? It was lukewarm. So here you had two sources of water, one that was cold 
that came into town and ended up lukewarm. And when it was hot, that had its own properties that came into town, that was lukewarm. And so you had a town that was full of lukewarm water. And Jesus was saying, like, listen, just like the water sources, this is the state of your church. And it's interesting that uh, Jesus would say this. The church, of course, either being hot has its own purposes, uh, like a thermal spring, and being very cold has its own purpose. But both of those purposes didn't exist for the town of Laodicea, and apparently not for the church as well. And so the church had lost its purpose, and it was, it was spit out, or was about to be spit out, as it says, by Jesus. So Jesus was disgusted by this church. It was something that was very distasteful to him, and in fact, you could say it makes him sick. The word might spit out might be better translated as vomit. So it's like a, a very visceral kind of reaction that Jesus has. So what in the world, why, what makes this church so, so lukewarm makes him sick? Well, Jesus says very clearly in the next verse, and let's take a look. Okay, verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing, but you do not realize you are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, poor, blind, and naked. And so this kind of like smug, well-off attitude that, that characterized the town, even as they experienced earthquake and de- devastation, apparently had infiltrated the church. And so what makes Jesus spit them out or want to spit them out is really this kind of self-sufficiency and a, 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 self, uh, uh, a self-centered approach to their own lives. In other words, Jesus has a real distaste for self-sufficiency. And this is a completely different message than on which Western culture and even modern culture has been built, isn't it? I mean, America has been built on this kind of independent spirit, self-sufficiency. And churches, people within churches, particularly in affluent areas, we can easily develop this attitude if we're not careful. And this, in fact, commentators, if you read about this book in the Church of Laodicea, it has been said again and again and again that the church in the West and the modern church, perhaps this church, the final message, and maybe the reason why Jesus put it last is because this is the most important message that we need to hear today. So we need to have ears to hear what God has to say. And perhaps this is true and we need to take this message seriously. And of course, it's true anywhere where consumerism has replaced Christ. I mean, during the Christmas season, it's very easy to get caught up in the distraction and the purchasing and the buying and the doing and the stuff that surrounds Christmas and completely forget the entire reason. You have it in mind, oh yeah, it's kind of about Jesus, and you think that and believe, you say you believe that, but is that the way that we, the church, Christians, actually live out the Christmas season? Something worth pondering as we do it. We, we too are in danger of being spit out or being distasteful to Jesus in our attitude toward him uh, if we kind of develop the same kind of perspective. And so most Christians, hey, you would agree with the statement, right? I need Jesus. You could say, yeah, I need Jesus. But is that the way that we actually live our lives? Is there a sense of desperation that we really need Jesus in the details of our life? And so this church in Laodicea is really so relevant today because of this prevalent attitude is that I can be self-sufficient in and of myself and I can have Jesus on the side I can have a little bit of religion or I can have a little bit of spirituality and then I can live my life basically how I want to live my life. That God's word doesn't have really much of a bearing, really, and I'm not going to organize myself, my life around God and what he says or what Jesus says. 
is, but I'm just going to kind of take what I want out of what Jesus says and, and live out that kind of way. In fact, most of modern identity, yes, you can go back, I mean, there's, you can go back into history and look at this, like Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. It's like this self-expression that your identity is no longer defined by something outside of ourselves. We get to define and express our own identity. It's a self-sufficient attitude that is distasteful, distasteful in the mouth of Jesus. And we need to be aware, very aware of that. And this is the age in which we live. But Jesus says this, in fact, is the greatest spiritual poverty. Jesus would say that the greatest poverty that exists is a life without God, is a life without Jesus. Have, we thought, have you thought about that? That actually, what is poverty in Jesus' sight? What is absolute desperation? Like someone climbing out of the rubble of an earthquake is life without him. This is the most important thing and what the message that Jesus is trying to communicate to the church. You know, I've often wondered myself, I've had this thought for years and years, um, and it's something I still continue to think about as I travel around the world, particularly to South America. And that's why, why does it seem so consistent that God's supernatural power and presence is available and like there's so much faith in these poor communities Whereas in the West or in the affluent world, I'm speaking generally up here, but it's not so much that. Like I, I, not, that's just a general observation. I don't know, have you had that observation too? Well, I've personally experienced it. Let me give you an example. We were, at, um, we were up in the high mountains of uh, Bogota, and we went to a poor community where there was a, a man named Brene who had been serving the, uh, the poor children in that community, giving them music lessons, providing food. It was the kind of thing where if, um, if the day before they were going to do an outreach, 17 meals would show up and then 17 children would show up. And then the next week when they did the outreach, 40 meals would show up and how many children showed up? 40 children showed up. So this is the kind of thing. But we went and we prayed and we did what we do here. Like, hey, we, were, we prayed and I felt like God... The Holy Spirit wants us to pray for people with three different ailments. So one of the things I sensed for that particular day was God wanted to heal backs, people with back issues. So he said, does anyone have a back issue? You can stand up and we'll pray for you. So several people stood up and I started praying for the first person. Just like took a moment, just a second, and then kind of stopped and said, I want to make sure, you know, as we're praying here, uh, you tell me the, your level of pain so I can keep, you know, I can pray. No. And like... After the, after she's like, well, okay, thank you, but I, I'm, I'm already healed. I'm already better. You're like, wait, like you're all the way better? She's like, yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Appreciate it. And she went on worshiping. I was like, wait, what? I was like, okay, I guess I'll go pray for the next person. And like person after person, I prayed for, and after about five seconds of praying, just, pray, just the basic prayers, like they, they're better. And I'm like, is it, are you just, what, what is happening here? And I've had this experience again and again and again as I've gone, particularly among the poor communities. There is something that happens when there's a level of desperation for Jesus that that's the only thing you need, the only thing you have in your life at that moment, that the supernatural power and presence of God is so real. And this is what it's like in our midst. And this is part of what Jesus is saying, is that this sense of desperation that our need for Jesus matters. And so the church in Laodicea, they felt rich, they didn't feel needy like they really needed much. And Jesus did not hold back from telling them that they were just the opposite of what they thought they were. You think, you know, you have this great clothing line? Well, no, you don't need that clothing. You need the white clothes that I give you, the kind of clothes that you put on when you're baptized. You think you, you see so clearly that your eye ointments and, and treatments, your great medical 
you know, prowess or whatever, that, that that's going to give you sight? No, you need to come to me so that you can see. Do you think your banking systems and all your gold coins are going to make you rich? No. It's the kind of gold that you can get from me that really makes you rich. And so Jesus flips the script like the people climbing out of a rubble on an earthquake who had lost everything. We need to be desperate for Jesus. So that's the question. So I want to just let that question linger as, as we uh, look at these last couple uh, sections of the scripture. Is our, I think this is the question, really the bottom line. Is are you desperate for Jesus? Is there a sense of desperation and need or you got it? You're, self, you're a self-sufficient person. You understand how it all works, right? You got all the answers. You got all the resources. You got all the connections. Or do you really need Jesus? Like a person who is marred and bloodied, can't see, whose home had just crumbled and can't find their family. This is the kind of desperation that Jesus is talking about, under which many of the other churches lived, but not the church in Laodicea. So how do we respond to a message like this? Well, Jesus actually says so. So in verse uh, 18, he says this. He says, I counsel you to buy from me the gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. The white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. The salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. See, the problem is that the church had been blinded by their riches and affluence and resources, and they thought they had it all together. But Jesus said, listen, the solution is to come to me. The solution is to repent. We cannot escape this theme throughout Scripture, this idea of repentance, which simply means to turn back to Jesus, to think differently, to change the way that you see, think, and act in accordance with what Jesus says about our reality. In other words, we're allowing Jesus to find our reality rather than our own self-sufficient thought and ability to understand how life actually works. He goes on and says this in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So despite, despite the way the Laodicean church had basically shut the door in Jesus' face, the way that they had rejected him because they were good, they didn't need Jesus anymore, despite of what Jesus had done, this is such a loving, incredible rebuke. Jesus loves them, and he's saying this. The reason he rebukes them and uses these strong, this strong language is because he loves them. He wants them to turn. He want, they want he wants them to experience the life of the kingdom and have intimate relationship with him. And you can see in other parts of scripture, like in Proverbs 6 or Hebrews, Hebrews, Proverbs 3 or Hebrews 6, this is, or many other parts of scripture, in fact, the way God reveals himself to the prophets and, and, and throughout the, the Pentateuch, is that God is like a loving father who disciplines his children, and he does so in love so that they would turn and they would be, be like him ultimately. And that's, that's how God treats us, as a loving father. Now, with that said, for those, there's many people here who have had difficult experiences with their fathers. That's a common experience then, where they can't really relate to God as a father in the same way. And so the idea of re- being rebuked or disciplined as an act of love is something that might seem foreign to you. So if you're in that case, doesn't make it not true, but 
we can also look at the way Jesus relates to his, his followers as well. And he said to them at the Last Supper when they took that meal together, I no longer call you my servants, but I call you my, my friends. Jesus is our friend. He wants to be. And what is he doing here? Jesus is speaking to his friends. He's saying, guys, you think you're rich. You think you got the right clothes on and everything is together. You're not. You are not. You're blind. You're wretched. You're naked. You're poor. And I want you to see that. Jesus is speaking to his friends. He's speaking truthfully. He's speaking lovingly and he's speaking sharply because that's the way loving friends speak to one another. And when Jesus speaks to us this way, and Jesus will speak to us, if we're following him, he will bring correction to our lives. And he brings correction to us, not to bring condemnation, but conviction. And there's a big difference. Roman 8 says this, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're called according to his purpose. So we, we stand, we stand under conviction, but not the condemnation. Condemnation comes from the enemy. Conviction comes from the Lord for those who are in a relationship with him. I want to, here's Hebrews 12. So let me pull that up. Let's pull that up. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, the author says this, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So it's kind of interesting to note that this church, um, the one that's probably, probably criticized the most by any other church in the list of seven. I mean, you can make an argument that somewhere maybe he's a little sharper or other, but this is, this is pretty, pretty sharp criticism. That the sharp, the, this church that he reserved the, 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 the most strongest kind of message for is also the message in which he paints the most tender picture of relationship. Where there's this Jesus, Jesus here, He's standing at the door knocking and waiting. And that idea of eating with someone, the idea of eating someone is just a a, a picture of intimacy. You eat with people you want to relate to, you care for, you connect with. And so this picture is for these people, and this is the invitation that Jesus, Jesus has. And it's a picture not only of what he wants for them in this moment, but it's actually a prophetic picture of what's to come when the, this messianic feast is going to happen at the end of time. And so in the moment, there is this, this call for intimacy, but it's actually a bigger picture that's for all of us, the church, where Jesus and his bride come together in a great feast to worship and celebrate the great mercy and love of God. It's a beautiful picture that he gives to the church in Laodicea, despite despite the way that they had been acting and the way that their attitude was. So you may be seeing this picture. It's a painting titled Light of the World by English artist William Hunt. So he painted it back in the, this is like a slice of it, the, the 1500s. But it illustrates well this principle. You kind of see this. Um, he actually went to Israel and kind of uh, lived there for a while to get the sense of the lighting and how it all worked. But it's got, there's a door that's overgrown with weeds and has like uh, rusted nails in it. And he's not staying there knocking. There's no handle on the outside. And the point of the uh, picture there is, which is, he gets to uh, really well in the, the sense of the, this, this message, what Jesus is saying, is that, listen, the handle is, is actually on the inside. And unlike the door that we spoke about that only Jesus can open and shut last week with the previous church, is that this is a door that only you can open and shut, that only we, the church, have the opportunity to open and shut. This isn't Jesus. He's giving us the opportunity to open the door or not. And in fact, if you look at the biblical literature, 
the owner of the house is not us. So if you look at all the other parables that Jesus told about a door knocking and a servant, Jesus, in fact, is the owner of the house, and we are simply the stewards of this house waiting, that we need to be ready and awake when Jesus knocks and returns again, like the parable of the virgins or other stories that have been told even throughout the Old Testament literature. So are we ready, or are we like Scrooge McDuck, maybe counting our coins, we're too busy counting our, our gold coins, or maybe we've just fallen asleep like the church in Sardis, or maybe we're occupied with other things when in fact Jesus has been standing there for a very long time, very patiently knocking, waiting, waiting for us to wake up, waiting for us to, come, to see him standing there. In fact, this is a message to the church. Jesus is standing at the door of our lives, at the door of our church now, waiting for us to open. And will we let him in? One of the things I love is this idea of keeping watch in the scripture. And keeping watch is often connected thematically to prayer. It's our, it's our prayer life. And so if, you wanna, if, you, if you're wondering, if you're listening, to, you read a scripture like this and you're wondering, like, am I going to get spit out? But like, am I, is there anything distasteful in my life maybe that Jesus would you know, want to spit out? Or is this, well, one of the ways to gauge that, even biblical, the biblical theme of keeping watch and being in a, a servant that's wide awake waiting when Jesus is knocking or when he comes back with the oil, those kind of things, <clears throat> is simply to take, take a look at your prayer life. So how is your prayer life? Prayer life is, prayer is the way that we relate to God. It's, it's the relational context in our walk with God. Prayer is basically communication with God. Whether we're listening or whether we're talking, it's all part of the same package. And so if you have perhaps fallen asleep in your prayer life, you might want to take this as a message, as a warning from Jesus. Beware. Beware of what that might be. You know, one of the things I felt, and then I'm speaking a little bit prophetically here because our reflection on what I feel like the Holy Spirit saying to our church. So over the past few months, as I've been praying and some other leaders have been praying, what I feel like God's calling our church to do is go deeper in our prayer life with him, in our intercession with him, in our intimacy with him. I believe this is what Jesus is saying to the church in Conchahokan at this place and in this time. He's calling us to deeper intimacy, not just individually, but together as a community. Everyone, that takes everyone, takes all of us. It's not just the Ben Mel saying a prayer at the end of worship, or me saying a prayer at the end of the sermon, or you know, the small group leader saying a prayer for the people. No, it's all of us. We, the church, deepening our prayer life together. And we want to offer opportunities. The ones we have now for the church at 10 o'clock, you can come and pray. In all those small groups, we take time to pray. And in, during, uh, uh, during our outside-the-box Sundays, we take extra time to worship and to pray. And one of the things we're going to be starting uh, in the new year, in fact, to be responsive to what God's saying to us, is we're going to start having a reinstituting again, which we had, we had made some adjustments, a time of worship and prayer every other month or so. And then we'll be getting together outside of the Sunday service. But you don't need to wait on us or a leader to say, hey, we're doing an event. You can do that yourself. You can gather friends and you can pray. And you know when you pray? When people pray, what's the biggest motivator for prayer? Is desperation. <laughs> Who do you think is praying, praying more? The guy on the love boat or the guy on the battle boat? Battleship, right? 
It's the guy who's in the trenches who's going to be praying. That's the de- it's the desperation. And so the question, again, my friends, I believe that God's inviting us to, is are you desperate enough? And if we're desperate enough, we'll pray enough. So here's what we, Jesus says. Our role in the story is to recognize, okay, so I'll use, I want to use some R words to help kind of let it roll a little bit. Our job is to recognize our spiritual poverty, to be ready when he comes, and to respond to his invitation. So how do we do that? So, well, life might make you pray a lot. If you're being persecuted for your faith, if someone in your family is heavily criticizing you because of your, something to do with your faith in Jesus, that should cause, that'll probably cause you to pray. But in our modern environment where maybe persecution isn't as heavy or resources are abundant, we need to be intentional about uh, not becoming spiritually blind. We can be intentional about our prayer life. And if you don't know how to pray, you can be intentional about training in prayer and putting those practices into your life. We can be like blind Bartimaeus. I don't know if you remember the story of Jesus. There's a guy named blind Bartimaeus. We can learn from his prayer. And he, he's a blind guy. Jesus, if you're not familiar with the story, Jesus is walking by and he screams out, have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me. And Jesus asked him, what do you want? He said, I want to see. I want to see. Have mercy on me. I want to see. Maybe that's the prayer you just need to start with. Maybe it's as simple as that. Just asking God in the details of your life, have mercy. That's the the Jesus prayer we talked about that, God. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Have mercy on me. And sometimes things get so desperate in your life, that's the only prayer you can pray. You can just say, oh, it was a John Wimber prayer. His prayer was, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. And that's okay. That's the prayer of a desperate person. Or maybe like, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I might see you. May you open the eyes of my heart. Help me to see you. And so I'd encourage you this week to develop, adopt the Jesus prayer, the prayer of blind Bartimaeus. God, have mercy on me. I need you. And though as we respond to him, we will develop this unlaodicean kind of attitude, a desperate attitude. Picture yourself. Do you picture yourself on top of the the king of the kingdom, not need with all the resources, or is the picture of yourself actually someone climbing out of the rubble of an earthquake? How do you see yourself? Well, Jesus says the earthquake version of yourself is actually a more accurate picture. And if we have that before us, we'll be able to pursue Jesus with how he wants. So those who recognize their need for Jesus are ready and respond in repentance are the ones who get the reward. So let's close with this last part, and then we'll take communion together. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So imagine that. Imagine one day when Jesus returns, which is what Advent is. Advent simply means arrival. And we look back to when Jesus came as a child, as a baby, was born. But Advent is also about looking forward. It's about looking forward to the day when Jesus returns again. 
He will come in his glory. He will come conquering. He will be, be the conquering king this time. Not just, not just the lowly, he will be humble. Not just the lowly, humble, reedy, but he's going to be riding a white horse this time. And those who have overcome will then become victors with him. And we will be reigning with him. And we live in the tension between the now and the not yet. So in the meantime, this is training time for reigning time. And God prepares us and we train in our time of prayer. So we're going to do that now. Let's take a moment. Let's just pause. We'll take communion together. But let's take some time to reflect. I'm going to give you space for the Holy Spirit to speak to you about how he might want you to repent, to think differently. We all need to do this. This is why Jesus keeps saying it to the churches and to his disciples. We're his disciples. We need to repent. So Holy Spirit, show us by your mercy, by your, by your mercy, how you're calling us to respond to this message today.